Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and boy, is my cup overflowing from this week. What a spectacular fall fundraiser we had. And thank you again and again and again for your amazing participation, how much you care about Faith Radio, how loved we all feel by you, and uh, thank you for uh, supporting us in such a significant way. It is, um, we'll be we'll be gushing over you for a while. So really nice uh, to have Drew Dixon is my first guest today. He's written a book called Know Thy Gamer, A Parent's Guide to Video Games. And maybe you're a grandparent and you're concerned about your grandkids' uh, video game habits. So we're going to bring Drew on to the show. He is a team leader at Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also co-founder and chief content nerd of Love Thy Nerd. He's a public speaker and co-host of Humans of Gaming. He's an editor, author, and has traveled all over the world. Drew, welcome. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, so you uh, have studied the gaming uh, world for a while. I know you've been, you started writing about video games and faith about 12 years ago. How did this whole ministry begin? Yeah, so um, I guess uh, I I always grew up playing video games. Uh, I played them as a kid and, and, you know, honestly through college and things. And then when I went to seminary, I kind of went through this phase where I thought they were a waste of time and I needed to grow up past them. And so I stopped for a while and then, uh, I got into ministry as a pastor for five years and, um, started playing with students in my church again and started taking up the hobby again. And, And at the time I realized like, there wasn't really anyone or weren't many people writing about the subject of video games from a Christian perspective, except to say that they're like evil and should be avoided. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to investigate this medium and, and sort of ask questions like, you know, is it all, is it all bad? Like what, what good can be found in, in video games and how, how are they, uh, you know, how do they convey messages and what messages do they convey and um, how do they relate to the Christian faith? And so, um, that kind of spurred me to start thinking more thoughtfully and Christianly about video games. And so I just started writing pretty ferociously about the subject and um, kind of wrote for all kinds of different publications. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of how it started. And then I got connected with a ministry called Game Church that did ministry and video game trade shows. They would go and do like relational ministry and pass out Bibles and things at big video game conventions. Um, it was a really unique ministry. And so uh, connecting with that ministry too just sort of spurred me on to see that there was a mission field there. Uh, you know, that there's this huge, huge mission field of gamers that um, I think sometimes the church either ignores or, um, or, or kind of demonizes. And I think there's an opportunity there to connect people to Jesus. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Drew, I would love to, to talk about sort of the cost benefit analysis. It sounds like you, in the five years you were doing ministry, you started to do some gaming with some of the, the students. And, and, and I'm, I'm curious as to 
what you were thinking during those five years. Were you thinking, boy, this is great to be back, or, huh, I wonder if I'm taking kids down a road, maybe we shouldn't go down, or were you thinking to yourself, this is wonderfully relational that we're able to connect on this level. I'm just curious as to know what you were, what was going on in your head. Sure. I, I think mostly the latter, but also I do think that there are legitimate things, obviously, to be concerned about when it comes to video games. Um, I mean, I'm a parent now. I have three kids, and so I think very critically about the kinds of you know media my kids consume and how we're going to engage those things as a family. Um, so, but I think for me, it comes down to what are video games and. I think what they are is they're um, they're part of God's good creation, um, and so that means they have potential for benefit and beauty and for um, the flourishing of our neighbors. They can be engaged in ways that are really good, but also like anything in creation, um, we as human beings are really good at figuring out ways to exploit them and use them in ways that hurt ourselves mm-hmm. and other people. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's sort of been my approach, even, even playing games with students is I could see, I could see some of the things that were not good and healthy and potentially exploitative, but then I could also see the potential there. And so, yeah, I think it's really important that we learn to think that way and then also demonstrate for our children and for the students in our churches, what, what it looks like to, to think Christianly about anything that we that we enjoy or consume in creation. Yeah, because there's certainly a possibility for addiction, for uh, distraction to the point where I'd rather not do uh, reading or studying or socializing with real people in real environments. I'd rather just Mm -hmm. hang in my basement and be on my video games. So maybe, uh, Drew, if you wouldn't mind sharing maybe a piece of advice for parents or grandparents who are struggling with their kids or their grandkids' addiction to video games. Sure. Yeah. And I think we need to be careful when we use that term addiction because it is a clinical term. And so to say someone's addicted, we need to observe a certain set of behaviors over a prolonged period of time. That said, though, like I'm not going to sit around and tell my kids, you know, until I've observed them for six months and seen the exact set of behaviors that I need to see before I step in and say, hey, let's develop some framework, some some rules some guidelines in our home to make sure we develop that I help them develop a responsible relationship with any kind of media, not just video games. Um, and so, so yeah, what I would say to parents is um, cause there's some parents that are throwing up their hands and just going like, well, I'm tired of fighting the battle of video games with my kids. So I'm just going to let them play however much they want. And then there's other parents that are out there going like, I just want to throw every video game out the window, hmm. um, run over it with a lawnmower, <laughs> something violent <laughs> yeah. to these video games and get rid of them. And I think both those approaches are miss the mark because if we get rid of all the video games, we're saying these things are evil, which is not true. We shouldn't I think as followers of Jesus, we should not be in the habit of calling good things evil or potentially good things evil. Um, because, you know, video games are very diverse. Some of them are wonderful. Some of them are amazingly creative. And then some of them, you know, have content and things that we definitely would want to protect our kids from. Mm-hmm. So, um, but then the, also this this approach of just saying, well, I'm tired of fighting this, so I'm just going to give my kids over to it. Um, definitely sends the wrong message too, because we're not protecting and guiding our children. So we need to find a balanced approach. And so in my book, I have 
seven different screen time strategies. So it, this is not just for video games, but um, but for any kind of media. Because I actually think there's other types of media that I think are more problematic than video games in a lot of ways. Um, like social media, I think is the big one. I mean, with so yeah. much of us, so many of us are just spending so much of our life just scrolling through through Instagram or Facebook. And that's really problematic for kids because they're seeing these pictures of, of people that um, are presenting a, a, a facade, right. Of how life ought to be. That is not, uh, not, does not lead to their flourishing in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think every, every child, every family is different. And so I think you got to know your children and what kind of strategy is going to work well for them. Um, and and try it, you know, try some different strategies, uh, involve your children. It's one of the things I encourage in the book, involve your children in the making of whatever screen time rules you set in your home um, so that they feel like they're a part of it. I'm not telling you to like let your kids set the rules, but let them feel like at least that they're a part of, of the process because then they're invested too. And then you give an opportunity. One of the most important things here is that we talk to our children about the rules we set, that they know why, they know the heart behind them. Um, I don't want my kids to be good Pharisees, you know? <laughs> I want them to be Jesus followers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, um, involve them in that process um, and get in there and play with them, you know, and talk to them about it. Like, why, why do you like this game so much? And ask that question like openly and honestly, don't ask it like, what's wrong with you? Why do you, you know, why do you like this game? But take a genuine interest in the things that your children are, are interested in. And then I think if they see that you're genuinely interested in them and the things that they care about, then when you have to put your foot down, that will be more respected because your children will get a sense of like, okay, my m mom and dad know me. They, they're invested they're asking questions. They're they're present in a way that that when the rules you know the rules come down, it's like oh okay well I, I'm more 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 going to be more receptive to it. Mm -hmm. Drew Dixon is my guest. His his book is Know Thy Gamer: A Parent's Guide to Video Games. And Drew, I think at some level you can understand how a parent would feel so frustrated where you say they want to run the video game over with the lawnmower or put it in the freezer. And it's your basic black and white response where you're going, okay, that's enough. No more games. And you can understand how, how parents can, you know, mm -hmm. make a move like that. And it probably is not helpful relationally, but to, uh, you know, just to side with parents a little bit, if the kids are playing video games and not socializing, not having friendships outside the home, not getting their yeah. schoolwork done, not having their room clean, and it goes on and on. You can see how they snap a little. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but yeah, the goal of the book is to help parents snap. One of the goals of the book, <laughs> the book is to help parents snap less. I like that because yeah, I like that. Yeah. Those moments when we snap usually are ones we regret. Like I tell this story in the book of a friend of mine who actually broke his, his son's, uh, Nintendo DS, which is like a handheld gaming system. Mm -hmm. Um, in a moment of anger. And, um, yeah. you know, that's something he had to repent from I get and it. he had to talk to his son about. And so, yeah, I want to avoid that and learn to like, uh, be, be students of our children, like get to know them, what makes them tick. Um, and, and, 
and respect them as persons so that we can develop a loving, I mean, that's really the big thing is develop, develop a loving relationship with their cho- with your children so that you can help them navigate these really complicated and often very frustrating uh, spheres of life, like, like games, like video games. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Drew, I feel very ill-equipped uh, to interview you only because I've only played one video game in my life when I was 12. It was, <laughs> it was Pong. Yeah. Remember Pong? Yeah. I do, yes. Yeah, it's that course. little noise. I can still hear it. It's uh, And you've got those little two bars on either side of the screen, and you're trying to knock the ball, the little thing back and forth. So uh, I'm going to learn more about uh, gamers, and I want to hear a little bit more after the break about what are the kind of games, if, if parents are scared um, by some of these games, we're going to want to find out how to best handle those uh, relationships about those games. Drew Dixon is my guest, and... In the book is Know Thy Gamer, A Parent's Guide to Video Games. We'll be right back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. I'm back with Drew Dixon. He's written a book called Know Thy Gamer, A Parent's Guide to Video Games. So, Drew, what's your middle name? Glenn. All right, so Drew Glenn Dixon. I thought maybe it started with a D, like Drew David Dixon. That would have been <laughs> that was going to be my guess. But anyway, yeah, uh, I, I digress. Um, let's talk about some of the video games that kids are starting to play that are making parents nervous. And maybe you would talk about the top three favorite games that parents and kids can agree on. Sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think. The, some of the big ones are like Grand Theft Auto. It's a series that has been around a long time. A new Grand Theft Auto game hasn't come out in a while, but Grand Theft Auto V is still pretty massively popular. And that's the one that has the most questionable content. I mean, um, you know, you're, you're committing all kinds of crimes in the games. There's nudity. There's, um, yeah, just a lot of content that most parents just about any parent, any Christian parent would of course. not want their child no. exposed to. Um, and then there's there's other games that I think are are more so. You know, there's you can go read re, uh, review or ratings and reviews of games. Like there's the esrb.org. Esrb.org is a place where you can go and and read the ratings. So like just like movies are rated R or PG-13, there's a governing board that rates video games based on their content. So that's a good place to go. Another great place to go is Common Sense Media that has very detailed reviews of what kind of content is in games. Um, just kind of lays out everything. Hey, here's what is in in these games. Um, but uh, the more, like, I think, like, difficult thing to gauge is the whole issue of, of addiction. So there are some games that are designed to keep kids coming back again and again and again. They're sort of designed like, like slot machines. Um, they use the same psychology to keep kids coming back. And so um, there's a lot of what, what we'd call free-to-play games. A lot of these are mobile games, so mm-hmm. games that you play on, on, on 
smartphones. Um, and yeah, they, they're free and they have all kinds of great content, but you have to keep coming back day after day to play, to get, you know, the, the currency, to build up the currency, to, to buy items in their in-game stores and buy new outfits for your characters. And so the, the idea is they use some really like kind of low bar psychological tactics to keep you coming back again and again. And so there's things called loot boxes. Um, that I think are unhelpful for kids, that those basically work exactly like a slot machine. You get a random reward for playing a game for so long, which is actually proven to be more um, more addicting than if you tell people exactly what the reward is. Um, mm, interesting. So anyway, yeah, I'd rather kids play games for intrinsic rewards rather than extrinsic rewards, like new outfits or, or things for their character. Mm-hmm. I'd rather the reward be the experience itself. So we're playing a game together and we're having fun okay. and it, we're, we're solving problems creatively. Um, we're, 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 there's teamwork, right? There's communication going on. Like that's, those things are wonderful. Um, but what I don't like is, you know, keeping me coming back just for these silly <laughs> you know, outfits and things. So, um, so anyway, I think that's something to be aware of is sort of like, the, the psychological tactics that are, are used out there. And um, uh, there's a, a friend of mine that has a website called Taming Gaming. So taminggaming.com. And okay. if you go there, he actually has a database of family-friendly games. Mm-hmm. And he also has, you can search that database and you can filter out any games that have loot boxes, which is kind of cool. So, and what, um, what, are you, what are you saying, uh, loot boxes? Yeah, loot boxes are random rewards that you would get gotcha. for playing a game gotcha. for okay. a certain amount of time. Yeah, so you may get something really rare and that nobody else has, but you might get something kind of lame and something that everybody else has. So it's that it's the same idea of a slot machine, right? Like yeah. usually gotcha. when you put a coin in, you're getting almost nothing. <laughs> um, but you might get a brand new car, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And so, so yeah, so... Um, so those are those are the two things I'd say to watch out for is is what kind of content is in this game and then like what are its reward structures like well, mm-hmm. how does it reward players for playing Yeah, um, Drew, I have a question that came in. How solitary is gaming? I know there's meeting online, but how much teamwork is happening between people physically present? Yeah, so um, there most people who play video games regularly are playing video games online together with other people, um, you know, at least a few hours a week. Okay. So it's not nearly as solitary as it used to be. Um, most people, the way they engage games is pretty social actually. Okay. And so, um, so yeah, and there are wonderful things that happen when we do that. Like I, like I mentioned before, teamwork and creative problem solving and communication, um, and of course, with that comes the downside of like, you're getting online and as a parent, you're probably wondering, well, who is my kid talking to Right, right. through his headset or her headset on as they play a video game? Yeah. So um, I would really encourage parents to become acquainted with parental controls, just about any platform on which you play a video game. So like a PlayStation or an Xbox or um, even a smartphone or even your computer there are ways as a parent you can step in and and lock some things down. Um, you can even make it to where they can they can't talk to other people via a headset, or you could make it to where they can only talk to their friends. Like, a, and you can make it to where you, as the parent, get final approval of who can and can't be their friend on 
you know, one of these gaming platforms. So that's a good way to sort of step in and make sure that your child's not playing with just anybody online. And, um, you know, there's, there's the potential for predation online, of course. And so we want to protect our kids from that for Mm -hmm. sure. Drew Dixon is my guest. His book is Know Thy Gamer, A Parent's Guide to Video Games. I know every parent, Drew, is most concerned about their child developing true life skills. And when I think about somebody interacting with a person in a video game, it's not too far distant than connecting with someone who's a friend on Facebook that you've never met. Are you really learning true life skills and developing the important things? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yes and no. Um, I think anytime we interact with anyone, whatever the setting is, that's an opportunity to learn more about that other person, more about our, ourselves. Um, so, yeah, the experiences we have playing games online with other people can be really rich and 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 meaningful. They can be also really like um, childish as well. They could be childish and, and um, like toxic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can play online with other people and everybody's cutting each other down and saying <laughs> awful things to each other. And that yeah. does happen online. So, um, so yeah, I want to help my kids learn how to like, as my kids grow in Christ, I want, if they, if they, if, and when they play games online and my kids do play online some, I want them to live out and embody their faith, their love of Jesus and the way they carry themselves in every setting of life. Amen. And that includes getting online and playing a video game. Yeah, I love that. And I know we're talking about video games uh, today with Drew Dixon, but Drew, I'd love for you to make a comment too, because earlier uh, before the break, you had mentioned about how, how kids can spend all kinds of time uh, going through pictures on Instagram or TikTok videos or, or anything like that which can be equally, if not more destructive than some of the video games they're playing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think in in a lot of ways playing a video game is more valuable (laughs) than than getting on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram, because usually on Instagram, you're just scrolling, right? You're just taking in information. One of the cool things about video games is you're actually playing. You're, putting input in the system. You read a book, mm-hmm. you watch a movie, but you play a game. And so that interactivity is part of what makes video games special is that we have, we put input into the system. We have to make decisions. We learn as we're playing them. Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd rather my, I'd rather my kids be playing video games, honestly, than to get on social media. I, I don't let my kids, they're none of my kids right now. I mean, my oldest is only 11, but, um, but she, as I'm going to wait as long as humanly possible before <laughs> I allow her to get on social media. Good. Because, um, yeah, I just think, I think it, it, it causes all kind of body image issues yeah. amongst kids. Um, you know, and plus they see a vision of, of life that's, um, that's pristine and like, right. Not, not, not true. It's not real. It's not vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, Drew, it's been nice to meet you. Thank you for spending time with me today. Uh, your book is Know Thy Gamer, A Parent's Guide to Video Games, and Drew Dixon has been my guest. been really nice meeting you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Thanks so, so much for having me. You bet. Have a great weekend. You too. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Heddington on James Chapter 5. We will uh, 
Be back before you know it. Four days of fall share, I can't think of anything I'd much rather do than get back into studying God's Word with my uh, dear friend, Greg Heddington. We're continuing our study in the book of John. I think we're all the way up to chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles open, get them open to chapter 20. And Greg, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Great to be back. Let's get to it. All right. Well, welcome to our study of the Gospel of John as we look at chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. As I entitle this lesson, Super Sunday, each year sometime in late January or early February, millions of people are glued to their television sets to watch the NFL's annual Super Bowl, either for the game or to watch the most expensive commercial advertising, since it is the most heavily watched television program of the year. In the, in the past few decades, it's been known as Super Sunday, However, the first Super Sunday took place about 2,000 years ago, way before anyone invented football, and it was the moment at which Sunday, in fact, became a special day. In about the year 30 A.D., the Son of God rose from the grave, never to die again. In chapter 20 of John, we learn about the 11 people who became eyewitnesses on the first Super Sunday, one woman and 10 men whose story John records. It will be another eight days before the twelfth person, the Apostle Thomas, witnesses the good news. It's because our living Lord conquered both sin and death that we can now live our lives with hope, in spite of problems and heartache, knowing the ultimate victory is His and ours. Now I want to talk about this game changer, the resurrection in this lesson, because it has changed everything about our existence. However, before we look at the resurrection, I want to expand our minds a bit and put the resurrection into context. Now, when I think of creation and the seemingly limitless expanse of the universe, I sometimes think about all the recent interest that we have seen in UFOs and whether or not people think that we are being slowly invaded by extraterrestrials. Anybody out there believe in it? You know, it can go both ways. Now, one of the most interesting movies I've ever seen about the universe was the 1997 movie called Contact, starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. I don't know if anyone's seen that before. I would also recommend it because it raises some interesting issues about faith. At the beginning of the movie, a young girl is looking at the night sky with her telescope. As she's being tucked into bed that night, she asks her dad, Do you think there are people on other planets? Her dad replies, I don't know, but I guess I'd say, if it's just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. Hmm. Now, to many people, that seems like a reasonable answer, and I don't know if there are other life forms like us somewhere else in the universe. But I'm sure that God has not wasted any space in his economy. All that extra space also says to me that we have a wildly extravagant, glorious, and creative God 
Just as Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Now that should make us feel pretty special that we, yes, we as believers, have the audacity to claim that we have a connection with the master of the universe because we know his son Jesus. Furthermore, and this is just as extraordinary, think of this. Because Jesus reflects his Father, we have a better idea of not only being made in the image of God, but also knowing how much he cares about all people because when we get to know Jesus better by reading his living word, also known as scripture, then we're about to actually have a sense, a better sense, of the creator God. Now that's a mind blower. How do we know this? Because John tells us this in the Gospel of John. By the way, a little pop quiz. In what chapters of John does Jesus equate himself with God? Now, it's easy to remember because they are all even-numbered chapters. So if anybody ever asks you that question, Jesus equates himself with God in John chapters 8, 10, 12, and 14. And in John fourteen nine, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, it could not be any clearer, and there are no words to express how inexpressible that is. We've heard those words so often, when you see me, you've seen the Father, that they lose their shock value. But to the first people who heard Jesus say it, they were startled beyond belief. They thought, you mean the unknowable God can now be known? Those words of Jesus shattered all false images of God that people had. Yes, when we look at the stars at night, we remember those words that Jesus is the human face of the Creator God. I'm going to say that one more time. This is what you might want to write down. Jesus is the human face of the Creator God. (laughs) Jesus was the most loving and inclusive person to ever walk the earth. The only people whom he did not get along were the ones who rejected him and decided to go their own way just like our first parents in the garden who went their own way. Jesus never imposes himself on anyone because we all have a choice to follow him or our own way. By the way, George Friedrich Handel, the German composer who had such an abiding love for our Lord, Handel wrote the words of Psalm 19, verse 1, into his masterpiece symphony, which we often listen to at Christmas, called, anybody have any idea what that means? That would be Handel's Messiah. You might remember that movement when the chorus sings, the heavens are telling the glory of God, everybody, right? (laughs) Well, it may not sound exactly like that, because the symphony, that's where the chorus comes in. But no matter who sings it, those words conform to Scripture. After all, The greatest opening line in all of literature in the world is Genesis 1-1, which says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, now we've expanded our thinking a little, and we're thinking about the universe and eternity and life and death and how the resurrection of the historical Jesus makes all the difference in one's life. So let's consider this question. What do people in America think happens to them when they die? Well, we have a pretty good idea because the Pew Research Center is an institution that tracks cultural trends of Americans. They did an extensive 
extensive survey on American opinion regarding what happens to someone, if any, when they die. Now, what's your guess about this next question? Here it is. What percentage of people who attend church, it does not matter what they believe, but what percentage of church attenders do you think believe they will go to heaven when they die? Well, I'm sure the answers are all over the place, but the actual answer from the Pew survey is 70%. The survey also asked Americans at random, who are just walking around, random people, who may or may not worship anywhere, they asked Americans at random what they thought would happen to them after death. 44% said they had no idea whatsoever. Now, I think that's an important statistic because I know believers who think everyone is a believer, so why should I share my faith? Well, that's not true at all. Also, in that survey of Americans at random, 2% believe they will go to hell when they die. Now, that makes me wonder how someone might go about living their life if they think they will spend eternity in hell. I don't know. It sounds pretty grim to me. Finally, 65% who claim they are believers... It could be that they know they are not Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu, so they check off the box that says Christian. But 65% who claim to be Christian believe there is more than one way to get to heaven, which is not scriptural at all. Now, there are several conclusions that can be made from this survey, but I think the most significant one is there are a lot of people who have no idea what it means to follow Jesus. And there is a great opportunity for each of us to step out on faith and share the good news with others in our own natural, loving, non-judgmental way. So uh, let's all pray that the Lord brings someone to your mind who needs to hear the good news from you. Now I'm going to get into much more detail about the resurrection because it's the event on which our faith rests. So this lesson will be part one of a two-part series in a couple of weeks. Is that right, Bill? Exactly. I think that's, I think that's yeah. right. So if you're taking notes, Roman number one, resurrection, the foundation of our faith. Now, sometimes we become so familiar with talking about Easter and the resurrection that we forget that as Christ followers, we base our entire lives on the fact that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. His resurrection validates his divinity, and therefore all he said, taught, and did actually occurred. There are some things in Scripture which someone may question, but none of them ultimately matters if they accept the foundational truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That is the deal-breaker. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Well, in other words, if Christ has not been raised, then his death did not pay for our sin, and there is no hope for us to share life with God now or in eternity. Now, it's not as if the creator of the universe worries about whether the upstate votes are going to elect him as God, because his status as God is not affected by the popular vote. But it is interesting to think about all those people in America who have no idea what will happen when they die or what the resurrection's about. If someone does not believe in the resurrection, why would they worship on Sunday morning? Mm. I mean, why not do something they really enjoy, like spend time with their family, go play golf, play tennis, read, or whatever? 
without the resurrection, Scripture is just a collection of ancient stories and lessons and ethics regarding how to live a better moral life. Which, by the way, is exactly how many of my secular Chinese friends and other non-believers view our faith. They think it's just a bunch of rules, kind of like opening a, a fortune cookie. Just a good advice. But in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled 330 specific prophecies from the Old Testament. Let me repeat that. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled 330 specific prophecies from the Old Testament. Now, mathematicians have calculated that the chance of one man fulfilling all those prophecies would be 1 in 84 followed by 100 zeros. Hmm. By the way, any number followed by 100 zeros is called a G-O-O-G-O-L, Google. Hmm. Sound familiar? It does. So there was in the past, and not too many years ago, a new Internet company that wanted to make their reach to the world limitless, and they liked the word Google, which it has all those zeros after, but thought it might be a little difficult for people to pronounce. So they decided to call their company, guess what? Google. <laughs> well, all right. Now, here's the, here's the real question. If these people did not believe Jesus was God, who do they think he was? C.S. Lewis memorably expressed this dilemma in his book, Mere Christianity, when he said this, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So Lewis goes on a bit longer about this, and his book, Mere Christianity, has had a great impact on me. But why would anybody follow and then allow themselves to be killed for a first-century teacher, as 10 of the 12 original apostles did, mm-hmm. if they saw that man crucified and died. So, Bill, that's just a few opening comments. I love that, Greg. I love this study. Uh, as we talk about the resurrection and we and we look about even the prophecy, uh, he's bat, he's batting a 1,000, which is a mm-hmm. pretty nice batting average. Let's take a little break, Greg, if you don't mind. Our guest is Dr. Greg Headington. We're continuing our wonderful study on the book of John. And after a short break, we'll be right back at it. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. All right, we are back with Dr. Greg Heddington studying our our book of John. We're in chapter 20, and Greg, uh, I, I can't wait to return. All right, well, let's get to it. We, uh, Bill, right before the break, I said, why would anyone follow and then allow themselves to be killed for a first-century teacher, as 10 of the 12 original apostles did, if they saw 
that man crucified and then die. Mm-hmm. After all, if you follow a dead God, you'll end up dead just like him. If you follow a living God, you'll end up living forever just like him. Now, the resurrection is non-negotiable. Someone might quibble over whether Jonah truly survived being swallowed by a big fish or whether Noah really was a skipper on a floating zoo which carried the last living humans and animals on board before a flood covered the earth. If someone wants to question whether the creator of the universe is able to make those things happen, well, they can just question the mysteries of God, but why would they do that? The fact that God, the Son of The Son of God, Jesus, came to earth in human flesh, lived a perfect life, was crucified, and after three days raised from the dead, as he predicted. Those facts are not just important. They are the foundation of our faith. As for the millions of people across the earth who for 20 centuries have sacrificed their very lives for their faith in Christ as God and still sacrifice their lives today, well, what a loss for them if they'd been a lie. Now, here's a quotation from Professor Thomas Arnold, the former chair of history at Oxford. The Oxford, I'm referring to is not Oxford, Mississippi, in case somebody gets that confused. It's Oxford, England. That's the place where they eat something called porridge for breakfast. Okay, Professor Arnold of Oxford, a secular man, said this, which my wife carries memorized. He says, I have been absorbed for many years studying the histories of other times and examining the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in the history of mankind which is proved by fuller and better evidence of every kind than the fact that Christ died and rose again from the dead. I think we can all say amen to that. Amen to that. And for those of you who would like more written material and evidence for the resurrection, I strongly suggest, if you've not already read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, who was also... A, a, uh, it's also been a film on Amazon Prime. As the former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, uh, Lee believed in nothing he was not able to empirically verify. And as an atheist, he did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But when his wife became a believer, he set out to disprove the resurrection, much like C.S. Lewis tried to do. Strobel went all over the country and even to England, interviewing top medical doctors, psychiatrists, historians, archaeologists, detectives, and what he found convinced him of the veracity of the resurrection. Brilliant book, brilliant movie, and I recommend both. Now, Roman numeral 2, The Empty Tomb, Chapter 20. Several times during his earthly ministry, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection. However, his followers forgot all about those predictions in their grief once he died by crucifixion, and it appeared they were, they were at the end of their journey. They were crushed, and some of them were no doubt ready to go back to fishing. Matthew, back to being a tax collector. They'd given up everything, home, family, work, to follow Jesus, whom they thought was Messiah, and now he's dead. His body's placed in the sacred tomb, and the first one to visit the tomb is Mary Magdalene, the one whom Jesus had delivered from demon possession. Check that out in Luke 8, verse 2. She was not the unnamed prostitute in Luke 7, which for some reason has become confused with Mary Magdalene over the centuries. Why was she at this this, um, tomb so early? Good question. According to John's Gospel, the reason Mary is visiting the tomb so early on Monday is in order to anoint Jesus' body with the customary Jewish spices, because at the burial preparations before, they may not have been completed because... Nicodemus had brought 70 pounds of spices with which to anoint the body, but Mary knows that Jesus had been hastily buried on Friday, so the anointing could possibly, may not have been finished by sundown. 
and it's possible it did not go according to the Jewish law. So she wanted to make sure it was taken care of correctly. Now, here's a textual question. Some of the details in John's Gospel differ from those in the three synoptic Gospels. For instance, Matthew 28, verse 1, says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was with Mary Magdalene walking to the tomb. And then the other two Gospel writers give different details of the women who walked along. Does that bother anyone? It, it does bother some people. Here's the point which we see throughout this Gospel. These so-called discrepancies actually help prove the infallibility of Scripture. Well, how so? Well, for example, when someone witnesses an accident or a crime in their testimony, they, uh, their account will always vary in some details from the testimony of others who saw it, because each person usually sees the accident or the crime from a different location, or they arrived at the scene at a different time. If all the testimony of the witnesses are exactly the same, the police will wonder if the witnesses all got together to corroborate the facts, because everyone having the same exact testimony is pretty unlikely. In the case of the resurrection, here's the point. All the witnesses agree on the most important fact, which is the tomb was empty. Now, the Apostle John was the last of the four who wrote about the resurrection, and he would already have known what the other three gospel writers had written years before. But John's focus in his gospel centers on the testimony of Mary. Well, why is that? Because she spoke to Jesus just after his resurrection, and it was the one who the other gospel writers agree with was also the first in their accounts at the tomb. So as Mary Magdalene and one or two other women are walking toward the tomb, they must have been discussing how to get into the tomb with their spices because of the heavy stone used to seal the tomb, and that had to be moved. Now, they must have hoped that the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb would take pity on them and help them roll it aside. Now, wait a minute. Roman soldiers? Why would Roman soldiers be standing watch and guarding the tomb? Well, Matthew 27, verse 62, tells us that after Jesus is crucified, the Pharisees meet with Pontius Pilate and tell him that since Jesus had claimed that he would rise after three days, Pilate had better secure the tomb, lest Jesus' disciples steal his body and claim that Jesus Jesus had risen from the dead, and Pilate's job as governor of Judea would then be, no doubt, terminated before he could even say prophecy fulfilled. So Pilate stations a guard of soldiers just outside the tomb, which is sealed with a heavy stone. As the women arrive at the tomb early in the morning, they find the heavy stone rolled away and no soldiers anywhere in sight. Now, Luke 24 tells us that the women then enter the tomb, but do not see the body of Jesus. While they're wondering about that, two men appear in white clothes, which, according to the literal Greek words, gleamed like lightning. The women, of course, are terrified and bow down with their faces to the dirt for reverence, while the two men say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just like he told you in Galilee, that he would be crucified and rise on the third day. Well, then the women remember what Jesus had told them. These men, of course, were angels from God. And, you know, in my thinking, don't you think maybe they're a little bit surprised that the humans could be so sad at such a moment? I would think they'd go, come on, don't you know what happened? 
Next, since we know the writer John is focusing on Mary, verse 2 of John says she runs to tell the apostles that the body of Jesus is gone. Now, you would think there would be a happy celebration among the eleven, but the Gospel of Mark tells us they do not believe her. We don't know why they don't believe her, except that in the first century, the credibility of a woman was always suspect. They're thinking, well, I mean, after all, a woman is not even allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. Then again, you can also imagine that one of the apostles who hears the resurrection news from her might say something like, all right, now, let's let's all not get too hasty about this, brothers, because consider the source. I mean, Mary, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you have been with us for a while now, but we all know that Jesus delivered you from seven demons. Perhaps you had a little relapse when you went to the garden and you only think you saw an empty tomb. After all, we've got to consider that we're hearing this unlikely news from you. I'm sorry to say that, but let's, let's be realistic about your background. Well, it is one of the greatest ironies in the history of the world that God chose to make the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection, not only a woman, but particularly one who had been delivered from the dominion of Satan. And Bill, this just shows us God's love and tenderness toward those who are considered lowly in the eyes of their culture. Uh, Bill, do we need to wait for part two of this lesson in a couple of weeks Yeah, now? this is fantastic, Greg, and I think this uh, will be where we hit pause, and we'll do part two next time we, uh, we meet up on this beautiful study of the Book of John. Dr. Greg Heddington, of course, is our teacher, and thank you, Greg, once again for being on the program. Have My a, great pleasure. Yeah. Have an awesome weekend. We'll take a little break. we come back. Dr. Heather Holloman will be our special guest in the amazing replay of Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.